Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Chamber Foundation's Path Forward series. Today marks the one month, or as you all know, that's seven and a half pandemic years, the one month mark of this series. And we have been so delighted with the number of experts who've been willing to share their expertise with us and for all of you for being with us on this journey. We're happy that you're finding usefulness in this program, and we're really happy that you keep telling us how we can make it better. So thank you for this and for, for being with us and joining us. If you're new, welcome. And you can find previous programs at the website, which we will tell you more about at the end. So we have explored all kinds of the aspects of this pandemic and the path forward return to work from the science of epidemiology and testing through essential services like childcare and transit through deep dives into consumer behavior. Last week, we talked about lessons learned from other countries that are ahead of us on reopening. And today, we're going to go local. Dinner and a movie. What could sound like a more typical Saturday night? Only now, it feels like a relic from a bygone era. Returning to the activities of life that bring people joy is really what returning to work will feel like because it will mean returning to dining and to sports and to entertainment and to worship and to volunteering. But it's exactly the togetherness of those activities that make it so complex to get started again. That's why we have been focusing on industries that might have an easier time reopening or ones that never closed because they were deemed essential. Today, however, we'll look at the other end of the spectrum, the high-density industries that require that togetherness at the very essence and core of their business model. If you look at those high-density industries, just in the April jobs data, 8 million people who work in those industries lost their jobs last month. 8 million. I mean, the human toll is just hard to calculate because we know that it goes well beyond a simple you know, number on a page. And the reality is that many of these types of businesses may be among the last to recover. At the U.S. Chamber, we're doing a lot of work thinking about how we can help those industries through this time. We know that public officials will tell us when we can return to work. And as we've discussed in this series, business is determining how that can happen. But it's ultimately going to be up to consumers to decide when they feel safe, up to employees to decide when they feel safe going back into environments where they're going to come in contact with all kinds of people. So last week, we talked, as I just said, to people in other countries where they have seen gradual reopening. And this week, as we come back to the United States, we're going to start with a top advisor to the governor of Washington, who's going to share lessons from really the first state to confront this pandemic here at home. We're also going to talk about how restaurants and movie theaters and other high-density businesses can safely and sustainably return to work. We are pleased to welcome Vice Admiral Raquel Bono. Uh, she is the Director of COVID-19 Health System Response Management for Washington State and a former Director of the Defense Health Agency. As Washington's coronavirus healthcare czar, Admiral Bono has worked closely with the governor on the state's response to the crisis. Also joining us is Rick Roman, owner of the Roman Theater Management Company, an independent movie theater owner with screens in Delaware and Kentucky. And we're pleased to welcome my friend Michael Kaufman, partner at the Astor Group and former chairman of the board 
of the National Restaurant Association. Rick and Michael will share insights on how their industries are evolving, how they're adjusting to this new environment, and what innovations we might see as more states begin to reopen. As always, we'll take questions at the end, and we hope you'll use your chat function to start typing them in as we go. So let's get started with Admiral Bono. You know, things are changing so rapidly that it's just, it's hard to keep up, even for people who are working on it full time. Can you give us your assessment of the current state of this pandemic? So I think that um, the, you're right, Suzanne, and, and thank you for this opportunity to be here. Um, the uh, the state of the pandemic at time is really starting to be um, on the other side of what we think the original insult was or the original surge. But as you are probably aware across the country, everyone's on a slightly different time. So here on the West Coast, Wash State, we feel like we've gotten to the other side of the peak, but we're still not quite sure of what's going to happen now since we past this first piece. What do you think are some of the more important things that are influencing the course of the peak of the surge of the pandemic? Yeah, um, I think that everyone's finding out that really uh, the most effective way of containing this, this uh, pandemic or this uh, virus is by being able to continue um, uh, that social, the, the physical distance and that isolation. The other part of that is how well we're able to test and identify where it's actually occurring. And I, I think that's exactly the situation though that contributes to some of the quarantine um, anxiety or the quarantine restlessness at this point because we've had to maintain this for some time. But it's also been very effective in helping us flatten the curve and really get a better handle on where the disease is and, and what it's doing. You said a minute ago that our information is changing so rapidly. As you um, look at what you've learned in the past couple of months, what do you wish you had known at the beginning that you know now? That's, that's a great question. And actually, somebody else asked me that earlier today. I, I wish that what we had known, or, uh, and it, maybe it's not so much uh, what we had known, I wish we had appreciated early on just how um, easily transmissible this virus is. I, you know, we had recognized that in other countries, uh, but it was, we were kind of slow to appreciate that here in our in our own and um, and really slow to respond to the fact that it's uh, the only reliable vector for this, this virus is another human being. And so I, I think, I wish we had appreciated much more quickly uh, how quickly or, or how rapidly this virus could go from person to person, that we had acted sooner to isolate people and be able to so Governor Inslee has laid out a, a four-phase plan for reopening the economy. He's extended the stay-at-home order through uh, the end of the month. What factors are going into those decisions as you're advising the governor, as you're thinking statewide? What are the factors you're taking into consideration? Um, and I think, Suzanne, that's actually the biggest challenge here with this particular virus, and which is why it's so hard to make some kind of definitive plan. Um, the, the transmission of the virus tends to be um, very silent. It can happen in uh it can come from people who don't appear sick. And so our biggest challenge is how well can we anticipate that it's spreading again and then kind of reverse our actions or, or when we've loosened some restrictions, you know, how quickly can we tighten back, tighten that back down? And so if you look at our phases, they're actually spread out over three weeks. Each phase covers three weeks. And part of that is, is 
to accommodate the two-week incubation time that we know that this virus usually takes in order um, before it expresses itself. So as we're looking at each phase uh, over a three-week period, what we'll be doing is assessing whether or not we see any indication the virus is spreading again, that people are sick, and that, that more people are being impacted before we make the decision to go in. And a recurring theme on this series has been how important testing is to reopen and to go through the different phases, as, as, as you just discussed. And yet there's a lot of confusion out there about testing, both about types of testing, what's accurate, what's appropriate. And so, so kind of a two-part question for you. One part is, when do you think we will have enough of the right kind of tests to, you know, when, when are the supply chain issues going to be resolved so that we have the right kind of testing? And the second part is, what role should business owners, business leaders be playing in testing? Yeah, I, you know, I, I love your second part of your question, and, and I, I want to spend a little bit more time on that because I think that it's so important. But let me just uh, spend a, a little bit, though, just talking a little bit about, uh, about tests. Um, you know, in the media, and as we've been talking about it um, in the scientists, professionals, we talk about testing as if it's just one discrete item, but the actual testing process requires three separate steps or three separate and so the first part of that is what we've probably heard a lot about, and those are the nasal swabs. And that's what we use to actually sample the, the uh, uh, fluid to see whether or not the virus is in. Uh, that swab has to go into something that we call a viral um, medium that allows us to transport it, a viral transport medium. And then from that, you go to the second kit, which is actually the assay. And that assay allows us to extract uh, the nucleic acid. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to get real technical, but that's the piece then that we're looking for that we put in sheet um, and that tells us whether or not a person has coronavirus. Now, there's never been a shortage of machines, always been a shortage of the swabs that allow us to test. With the federal government now starting to distribute more of those swabs, we hope here that we'll be able to scale up to the very large numbers. We want to get to about uh, 10 to 20,000 tests a day. Uh, we feel that we can do that. So, but the other part of that, and I think this is the actual, actually the more um, provocative thought, is what can businesses do in terms of what they need to pay attention with regards to testing? There are two things that we know about how well we can move forward. We know that uh, keeping people uh, separate and apart does a really good job of containing the virus. We also know that extensive testing allows us to anticipate where the virus is showing up and who might be at risk for being, being infected or potentially hurting or uh, infecting other people. Uh, I've often thought that for businesses, in order for them, especially those that are outward facing, have a very strong interface with the public and their customers, one of the things that they would want to consider is how they can participate in the testing, surveilling their own employees, so that they can reassure their own employees that they are safe. And in that same way, being able to look at certain businesses, if they can help us um, do some of the contact tracing. Uh, an example of that is that um, I had a chance to talk to a manufacturer uh, in the pharmaceutical business. And as people report to work, because a lot of the work that they do requires face-to-face -face interaction, uh, what they've done in that particular business is they have kept a, a log of who shows up to work so that if anybody um, has a uh, ends up being positive, then they can automatically start doing the contact trace. Uh, another business that that I've had a chance to talk to as we're looking at how do we reopen restaurants, they will voluntarily ask their, their clients to sign up on a list 
that to show that they were in the restaurant on a day so that if their person comes back ending up being positive for coronavirus, then they can start doing the, the contact tracing almost right away. Because we know the sooner that we do that, the faster we can contain the virus and the faster we can we can ensure that people uh, don't get exposed to it and the spread doesn't. I think that one of the concerns employers have is not just how to test or when to test or how long the test results are accurate, the liability of testing, but also just the practicality of where will they get them, who will pay the cost mm-hmm. of that. Um, and we're seeing that largely with PPE questions too. You know, what, where will businesses get PPE? Uh, what should they have, et cetera? How are you advising businesses in your state about acquiring equipment, whether it's tests or PPE? Right, and, and that's a great question because, you know, when all of this started, our first response was to conserve as much PPE as possible so that the frontline healthcare workers would have sufficient supplies in order to take care of those that came down virus. And so as we're going forward, what we're looking at in terms of testing is being able to test people without, because that's the other part. And so uh, some of the tests that we're looking are uh, self-administered tests where you can do that swabbing the inside and outside. It doesn't have the the nasopharyngeal test, which is really far back in the back throat. So that's one of the options that we're looking at. And and Suzanne, you raised a really question about who would pay for that. and I think this is something that I've learned, and I think that this is an opportunity going forward, is that we probably need to um, uh, minimize the gap between public health and medical. And I would also I would also offer in there that some of the health plans might want to consider that uh, they would want to help us minimize that gap. Because right now, the way it's set up is health plans will cover a test, somebody who's sick, symptomatic, but the current uh, current construct has testing to see if you're sick um, going to public health. And because there are so many people, there's uh, we have such a large population in our country that we suspect are naive, are coronavirus naive, that they've never been exposed to it. We feel that the testing, um, the number of people that need to be tested large. And whatever help that businesses and, and health plans do to help us cover that will only help our understanding of what our risk is and help control this a lot. It's really interesting. I could ask you a thousand more questions. I, w- I do want to get in the, uh, bring in the other panelists here and then we're going to get to you again in the Q&A. But let me ask you one kind of transition question here. As we move to talking about restaurants and movie theaters and entertainment in a minute. Let me ask you how you're advising high-density businesses in Washington State. What do you think somebody who owns a high-density business should be doing or preparing for? So uh, it's a great question, and and it has some real uh, immediate impact, something that I think that all businesses, uh, regardless of high-density or others, are going to have to face, and that is is how do you increase the distance between your clients and how do you minimize the, uh, the exposure that they potentially might have from somebody who's nearby. I think also the other pieces that we want to start looking at are some of the things we haven't thought about in a while, such as, um, you know, how do you how do you um, have more automatic doors so people don't have to touch certain surfs? How, how do you create it so that there's a minimum of exposure to uh, surfaces where the virus might be uh, sitting there? So I think that the biggest thing that, that we're recommending is decreasing the number of people in certain closed spaces and making sure that if you have people that are going to be 
in your staff for any length of time uh, that you're able to ensure that they're at least part. Gosh, thank you so much, Admiral. That was really helpful. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again later in this program. Let me turn now to Rick Roman, the owner of Roman Theater Management. Um, clearly, your industry has been particularly hard hit during this pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about your experience. Well, in one word, it's frustrating. 2020 was off to such a great start. We had some really good films like Sonic the Hedgehog. We had the uh, Bad Boys for Life. Uh, then uh, COVID-19 pulled the rug out of them from under us. And we had to close the theater on March 17th. Uh, in all my years of the theater business, I never had to lay anybody off or close the theater. Uh, but it was it was hard letting the staff, staff go. You, you talked about 8 million people. Well, 35 of those 8 million people came from my theater in Kentucky. And uh, I knew that the unemployment system was going to be overwhelmed. So we were able to at least pay all our employees an extra two weeks to hopefully hold them over till they started getting their unemployment checks. But it's been not a lot of fun. And so thinking about something that might be more fun. How do you imagine reopening? Well, first of all, the th you know, the theaters have to be allowed to open. And uh, we got the okay in Kentucky to open on June 1st. So that that was good. And for the next three weeks, we're putting together all our plans and policies to, but basically the state is giving us a set of rules that we have to follow and we'll follow those, but we're going to go the extra mile and make sure the theater is very safe and comfortable for our guests. And uh, within the rules, it's very critical to give the moviegoers a great experience, having a great time going out to see a movie is what keeps people choosing theaters over watching movies at home. Uh, so our mission at our theaters are to really make people smile. And if the moviegoers leave, leave our theaters with a smile, we've done a pretty good job, I think. So to the best that you can imagine, and I understand that the guidelines keep changing, that they're different in the different states you operate, et cetera. How do you imagine your customers' experience? You know, what does it look like to go to the movies June 2nd? On June 2nd, uh, it's going to be a lot different. Uh, first of all, we're encouraging everyone to buy their tickets online and we have forego the service fee for buying tickets online to hopefully give them another incentive to buy those tickets online. When you buy your tickets online, it's reserved seating too. So not only will you have the chance to pick your seat, uh, you'll be picking them in a uh, social distance way. So our computer software has been changed to allow for uh, when a group buys a ticket. So families can still sit together and when they pick their seats, the computer will automatically block out two seats on the right and left of them. We're already socially distanced. We have recliner seats in our theaters, but we're socially distanced seven feet already between the rows. So we just have to contend with the, the spacing in the row. That's probably the biggest change everybody's gonna gonna see, that uh, they'll all be sitting socially distant. Uh, the first thing they're gonna see when they come to our theater is we'll have a greeter there that is gonna help them, you know, navigate through the flow. We have set up the flow of our theater from theaters from ticketing to concessions to where they actually sit uh, in socially distanced uh, ways. So uh, the greeter will help them follow that, that, that flow. Those are the two biggest things. Uh, we've also cut back on the menu a little bit where we won't be serving hot food Food in the beginning. We're trying to uh, just keep the basics, you know, popcorn, candy, drinks, bottled water, those kind of things to make it, you know, make it a little bit simpler for the staff until we all get used to the customers and the staff get used to how the theater is going to be now. And then we can, you know, go back and add the food in later. You know, it's interesting. We did a program, I think, two weeks ago with uh, people studying consumer confidence and consumer demand. And one of the things they really talked about was how you help customers understand your cleaning methods, your sanitization methods, your socially distanced methods, some of the things you just described. And as you 
you're describing them, I thought, oh, you know, if I knew that as a consumer about my theater, I might be more likely to go. And so how do you imagine getting the word out in communities that that's what you're doing? There's two parts to getting people to feel safe and comfortable coming back to the theaters. The first part is actually making the theater as safe and as comfortable and while still maintaining a great experience for them. That's that's the easy part. Uh, the uh, That's just hard work. Uh, the second part is a lot harder in that you have to communicate and educate the consumer on how well the theater is safe now. And the things, you know, we have a really good social co- uh, media community uh, that we intend to advertise and explain what we're doing. Uh, but, you know, but more important, we are gonna film what it's like to come to the theater and and do a walkthrough uh, and then post that film online to show everybody everything we're doing, how we're cleaning the theaters, how we're disinfecting things, how we're socially distancing people. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, but nobody's ever calculated how much a video's worth. But it, it'll go a long way to showing the consumer just what uh, we're doing. I like this so much. You're going to make a movie about going to the movies. Of course you well, are. They're brilliant. I never thought of like that, but uh, yeah, that's true. I have to, I'll have to take a producer credit. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think you have to. Well, Put it on IMB. IMB. So you're making all these effort and adding a ton of expense, right, on on the that side of your ledger, and yet you're talking about less revenue if you're only seating, you know, X percentage of the seats that you were before, and so. How long can you make money doing that, or do you have to operate at a loss? Well, well, first of all, it's not that it's not going to be as expensive as everybody thinks to add all these features. I mean, a lot of it is just distancing people, uh, and you know, the, the cost comes in some extra labor to have the greeter and and the cost of hand sanitizing and, and extra. You know, we we spent a lot of money already cleaning the theater and maintaining it at a, a, a really clean and safe level anyway. So for us, the extra cost won't be uh, as as bad uh, the real the real issue is the the seating capacity we're cutting back on on our ability to put people in the seats we won't have as many seats as before so that you know at the levels that the states have been issuing so far Kentucky hasn't really said how many we're going to have able to do but some of the other states have limited the theater to 25 percent of your seats uh, and 25 percent of the seats is fine when you have the you know the, the films that bomb uh, it's no way can help you when you have the you know the Avengers the end game, those kind of blockbusters, you won't have enough seats to go go around. Uh, you can compensate for not having enough seats by doing more shows in a day. But the more shows you do in a day, the longer your day is, which ups your labor costs. So I think in the very beginning, it's going to be tough to make money. But we have to uh, invest the money in having people come back and get over the fact and learn that the theater is a safe place and fun place to go see a movie again. Well, two things. One, you can count on us. When you have your movie about going to the movies, we'll put it on our website and show people. Well, that would that, be great. We'll help you spread the word. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the innovations that that theater owners are thinking about. We're seeing a resurgence of drive-ins, or to your point, you know, 24-hour, make it fun to go to the movies in the middle of the night kind of innovations. Do you think any of these stick post-pandemic? Well, you know, if you look at the history of historically movies, uh, if you go back to 1980, there, our only competitor was TV. And since that time, there's been so many new ways to watch movies anywhere in the world, at home, waiting for an airplane. Uh, and what we found out is that people, that America is in love with movies. And the more people watch movies somewhere, the more they want to 
what? So our main bread and butter is always going to be play and move. I know we've, we've tried from time to time uh, different alternative type of entertainment, and, and it has some limited ex- uh, success. Uh, actually, the most successful thing would be the one you think that isn't that successful, and that's playing the opera. Uh, that's a really high-level you know, society thing to do, and that does better than a lot of the other things that the alternative products that they do. But at the end of the day, it comes down to movies. I mean, another thing they've been trying is eSports. Uh, which is games at movie theaters. And, and that had some some success too. But at the end of the day, when you add it all up, it's it, what puts people in the seats or movies. You know, it's interesting that you just brought that up because I think a lot of questions about uh, are movie theaters and streaming services competitors or do they work together? But I think what you just said is that uh, the more Americans have access to movies on different devices, the more demand goes up broadly. Did I understand what you just said, right? That's exactly right. I've been in the business a long time, and that is the truth that I wish the studios and the major chains would get together and realize. The truth is, when you watch movies at home, you want you want to go out and watch them too. It's just in a different format thing. And it's it's really, you know, people think it should be the opposite. When, when we first Back in the 80s, when we first cable came out, a lot of obituaries obituaries were written were writing the theaters off because it was over. You know, why would anybody want to spend that money to go to a movie theater when you can watch it at home on TV with a cable, HBO, or Showtime, or or what have you? But what what studies have found out over the years is that the more we watch the movies at home, the, the more we want to go out. So it's uh we're not in comp- competition with streaming, although uh, the studios and the and the major chains have put us in competition, but we really need to all get together on the same page and realize that people streaming at movies at home help the movie theaters, and people watching theaters uh, movies at the theaters help stream. If, if I could quote Bill Mur- Mur- Murray on the the movie Stripes, it, it, that's the fact, Jack. <laughs> Very few people call me Jack. Now I feel good about this whole segment. Rick, um, you know, I think that you're making a really important point and it's why business cycles can be so hard to predict and why innovators and, and people who take care of their customers always win both both sides. Because you know, when you talk about what we were all predicting a year ago versus right now, I mean, I, I can't imagine the next person who wants to have a staycation, right? I think watching movies in your house may not have the appeal it did a year ago once we're all allowed out. Anyway, this has been a fascinating segment. Thank you. We're going to come back to you in the Q&A, but I'm going to turn now to our restaurant. Can I say one more thing? You may. Okay, you're exactly right. You know, you don't know what you have till it's gone sometime. And I think people staying at home all this time have really found out what how enjoyable getting out of the house to go see a movie is. Yes, there's there's no question that we're all valuing getting out of our house a little bit more. Um, we consider it going out to dinner when we eat in the kitchen. So speaking of going out to dinner, let me bring in Michael Kaufman. You know, we all read every day just some terrible story about what's going on to our local restaurants restaurants, our favorite restaurants. Um, From your vantage point, can you tell our audience just how deeply affected the restaurant industry has been by this pandemic? Michael, I don't know if you are on mute. I know we were having a little bit of audio trouble. I'm going to give it just a second. Admiral, I think while we deal with this technical difficulty, I'm going to turn back to you for a question, which is we have people uh, pinning their hopes on a vaccine and thinking that's when we'll all reopen again. What, what are your thoughts about the development of the vaccine? Uh, Suzanne, I know that a, a lot of really uh, interested parties are 
are working very hard to make sure that uh, they're doing everything they can to identify that. And I have every confidence that the right researchers and the right scientists are working on. Even in the best of circumstances, it's going to take some time. And while we've predicted that a vaccine may be uh, ready by 21, I don't think it's going to be actually ready for distribution until sometime in 22, uh, if that. And there, there is also the consideration that we have to keep in mind that it is possible that there may not be a vaccine, uh, which is why I think it's even more important why we're having this conversation now about how we would be able to live with COVID till time that we have a vaccine or that we decide or we realize that we won't. So um, that's you know, it's, it's going to take some time regardless, and even when it does um, become a reality, it's difficult to distribute it and scale it. I'm going to come back during the Q&A and ask you if no vaccine may be therapeutics, but I think we might have Michael back. <laughs> Did we find you, Michael? Maybe not. So I'll ask you, Admiral, the follow-up on therapeutics. I mean, I think we've heard from people in the medical community on this series that the vaccines are hard. We haven't had one for a coronavirus yet, um, or, or a number of the, of the diseases that we have in the, in the world that we have to fight. But there is maybe more hope for a therapeutic that could make our ability to fight the disease a little bit stronger. Do you agree with that? I think that there is, uh, Suzanne, I think that's definitely a possibility. Um, I would, you know, I want to be very cautious because I know there is such a strong interest trying to find what that treatment might look like or if it's already available, if it's already already in our, our, our cabinet, our medicine cabinet. So I think the same degree of rigor and scientific uh, oversight be applied to trying to find treatment well. And uh, I think that there are some promising ones, remdesivir, one getting quite a bit of attention right now. And so I, those trials are very worthwhile in watching to see if we can get type of better therapy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I keep saying that, that I never count or bet against American innovation, whether that's uh, medical breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs, or business breakthroughs, right? And it seems that in order for us to really um, fight this, and not even fight it, but 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 persevere and thrive after this, it's going to take innovation in all of those sectors. So I can't tell if Michael is with us or not. I'm going to pause again to see if we can hear him. I don't hear him. Somebody asked me the other day what I've learned about work in this time, and we're all learning to be so much more nimble, aren't we? It's just a remarkable um, on-your-toes moment. Usually, I just admit to people that I don't also don't have shoes on, but we won't bring that up here. So let me go back uh, for a second and ask you, Rick, um, and bring you back in for a minute. When you think about your optimism for what you can do to bring people back in the movies, into the movies, and as you think about that, for business leaders in other sectors and other geographies that haven't opened yet, what lessons do you think you've learned or things you're thinking about that would help them start to prepare to reopen? I think uh, everyone can learn from the people that opened before us. I'm, I'm looking at, we're going to open after the restaurants. So I'm very, uh, in Kentucky, I'm very curious and I'm watching them very closely to see how they do it so I can learn from it. I think that everyone that opens that for us can look at the movie theaters and see how we what we did good, what we did bad, what we need to improve on and uh, you know make make their openings better. We all every industry has its own particular details of how they operate, but you know generally speaking there's you know like 
10 basic things you can do that that Kentucky is requiring of all the businesses. And I think how well you do those and how you do them, uh, everybody that comes after us can learn from. It's what I do. I'm looking at how the other people open the churches, the the retail, the the restaurants, and uh, watching them, I can see how I can become better. I think that's great. And I think we can use places like this to publish those best practices, especially when people are opening to sharing what's working and what isn't working, right? And so through the miracles of technology, I think we have Michael with us. I heard him for a minute. Did everybody hear him for a minute? I did hear <laughs> Okay, well, we'll keep waiting here. I know that we're eager to hear what he has to say. Um, it, it made me think of a follow-up for Rick. We're getting some questions from the audience, Rick, about um, people worrying about getting their employees back. And, you know, it's, it's one thing, the efforts to make your consumers feel safe, but your employees have to spend even more time at the theater. How are your employees reacting to coming back? Well, I think it's natural for them to be a little nervous and everything. I mean, everybody, everybody's nervous. And we're showing them that we're going the extra mile to make sure that they are as safe as they can be. You know, we, we're having them wear gloves, masks. We dis, you know, disinfecting the seats, disinfecting the, the work areas and everything. Uh, we're taking temperatures. So yeah, so you can't even start your shift if you're if you have a temperature. And then if you work more than four hours, uh, we take your temperature again. So our our goal is, you know, we like to think our staff is our family, and we take care of our, you know our work family like we take care of our families at home. We want to do the best possible thing we can do to make them feel comfortable and safe. And they're responding well to that? Yes, I laid off. Everybody I laid off is eager to come back. I, you know, I, I did, you know, I knew we were going to be open. So I, we sent out an email saying we're going to be opening. Who, you know, are, are you ready to come back? And every single person came back. Wow, that's amazing. They that's, want to come back. that's really a good reason to be optimistic, I think. Um, going back to uh, Admiral Bono for a minute, you know, one of the things that people are worried about, one of the reasons people might be a little pessimistic, are all the conversations about a potential resurge in the fall. Um, you've been quoted, I think, uh, as saying it's when, not if, uh, that there will be a resurge. What could we be doing now to mitigate the impact of that if it's such a sure thing? Well, Suzanne, I think uh, that, and I, I thank you for, for um, bringing up what I said, because it is true as we're watching this, we are seeing actually smaller outbreaking outbreaks happening now. And if you look across the states, you'll still hear about the reports in long-term care facilities and other congregate settings, how they're still having coronavirus show up in their population. And so part of the concern is, is that we haven't completely eliminated coronavirus, that it's still very present in our community, and that we have vulnerable populations uh, that, that are subject to getting infected and having it spread through them very quickly. And so the surge that we're particularly concerned about is in the fall when we anticipate when the seasonal flu and cold season uh, uh, come back, that that will be a time when we may also see another surge in the coronavirus. Two of those surge together would be something that would put a real um, uh, hardship on our healthcare system. It'll put another hardship on our, our economy and our business. And so going forward, what do we want to look for in terms of trying to help mitigate that? Uh, certainly getting the flu shot, the flu vaccine uh, ahead of this would be something that I would advise people to strongly consider doing. And as you get closer to the seasonal flu, seasonal flu and cold uh, time is really emphasizing to your staff employees uh, to be able to stay home.
home if they're not feeling well to continue wash frequently, practice uh, the safe hygiene in terms of avoiding touching your face. And and I, I heard this. I, I think that uh, another good uh, strategy would be wearing well. That's interesting. And and I think we're also hearing about some potential innovations that might allow communities to tell more quickly when a outbreak has occurred in the hope that if we're shutting things down, we might be able to shut them down in a more tailored way than kind of the blunt instrument we had to use this time. So, Michael, I think you're here. Is that true? I think I am, too. Uh, I apologize. I have no idea what the no, uh, internet can hear. It, it's our new normal. It's our new normal. And, and uh, you're just helping us all be more nimble. So thank you for that. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're one step further from Alzheimer's due to your uh, exercising us here today. Listen, I really wanted to turn to you because clearly your industry has been so hard hit. And so can you talk to us a little bit about the, the deep impact this pandemic has had on restaurants? Of course. And, you know, listening to the Admiral, listening to Rick, uh, you know, certainly the impacts are across this country in every possible way. But the restaurant industry, as I'm sure people have uh, seen and it's been widely reported, has suffered more employment or sales loss, really, I think, than any other industry. Right now, we estimate for just the restaurant industry, um, over 8 million employees have uh, lost their job, which is almost two out of three restaurant employees. About 40% of restaurants are currently closed. Uh, the conservative estimate is 3% will never reopen. I think that's actually low. Um, and if we look at uh, 2020 projections that we have right now, we're looking at about a $240 billion loss. Uh, and that's in relation to about a $900 billion expectation for the year. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're really back at about 2013. If that number turns out to be right in terms of uh, size of industry. It's just remarkable. And the, and the impact on, you know, human beings. I think we all think about our local favorites and places we love. And I want to ask you a question about that in a moment. But let's talk a little bit about the path forward. And as different states start to reopen, what are you seeing in the trends that restaurants are adopting, what best practices they're adopting, both to get their employees back and feeling safe and to attract customers? Sure. Thank you. Suzanne. So, um, so there are a number of guidelines. Uh, the National Restaurant Association, is in cooperation with the CDC and FDA and other uh, health authorities, has issued guidelines or protocols. But has has been described by the Admiral and uh, you know there and Rick. I mean, there are varying uh, regulations across the country within zip codes, practically. Um, and so we're seeing a whole variable response. There are really three tiers. Several states opened initially, um, and uh, we've been watching them very closely. The next Next tier is another 19 or 20 states that are opening, and there are fewer guidelines. In the first four, there were some really precise guidelines for opening. The next group, much less. And then the tier three states like California and New York, a number of others, uh, they're going to open later, and I suspect and hope that they're going to be learning and understanding what guidelines are there. But so much of this has been very locally driven. Unfortunately, we're also seeing, you know, some differences in how uh, members of the public look at them, uh, think about them they, as they think about uh, coming into restaurants. And you're making an important point, which is we know that consumer confidence is in part dependent on clarity. And one of the things the Chamber's been working on is how we can encourage national standards with local implementation, but so that there isn't so much difference across state or county lines so that consumers can really understand what to expect. And kind of towards that end, let me ask you the same question I asked Rick. So 
What do you think, what should we expect when we go back to a restaurant as this starts, as they start to reopen? What can we expect to see and experience? So, you know, that will, I think, vary in part by locality. Um, but, uh, but I would say that the best practices that we've seen from a public health point of view, um, you know, there will be uh, certainly fewer, if it's a dine-in restaurant, uh, there will be fewer tables. Uh, they will be spaced appropriately. Uh, you won't be able to enter the restaurant uh, probably without a reservation. Uh, and even with that, there will be a limit in the number of folks that can be in the restaurant. Uh, my guess is that staff will be wearing masks. There probably won't be soda fountains accessible to the public. Uh, restrooms will be cleaned uh, very frequently. Uh, menus may be either on a on a device um, that will then be cleaned or on a kiosk cleaned, or perhaps on a single-use piece of paper that will be then thrown out. Uh, my guess is that in many cases, menus might be streamlined just for efficiency. Uh, of preparation. Um, and so there will be a number of changes that will be visible and some that will be more behind the scene as restaurants likely continue their takeout and delivery business uh, and curbside pickup. And so they may need to be focusing more on that than they had historically as they uh, as they move forward. It's been um, interesting and, and I think super helpful to those of us as consumers to see the innovation that some restaurants are uh, implementing things you just talked about, whether it's curbside delivery or uh, cocktails to go or, you know, the contactless payment, grocery sales, et cetera. Do you think any of those innovations are here to stay? Well, it's interesting that you uh, mentioned that, Suzanne, because I just was on another call uh, and it wasn't while you were on, but just before. Um, so we've <laughs> just done some research at the National Association on that very question. And uh, not surprising, 54% uh, of those who are between 21 and 44 want uh, the continuation of delivery of alcohol with their food. Um, and so uh, our hope is right now about a 20% hit rate where it's permitted. Our hope is that we will be able to continue that uh, and do that on a more national basis because it is really part of the eating experience and it's uh, something that consumers do want. Yeah, and been a nice uh, kind of bright spot in, in, in for those of us who are getting, who are lucky enough to only be bored, right? I mean, this pandemic has hit people in such a horrible way with their health, with, with deaths and family members and friends with that loss of jobs and businesses. And so we're a lucky few who are just bored. But for those lucky few, the cocktails to go have been a nice innovation. Um, do you imagine, Michael, that, that restaurants, this is coming from an, uh, an audience member, do you think restaurants will be taking temperatures of their customers? That's another great question. And I heard what, you know, Admiral Bono talked about. And, and so we have, uh, I don't think so, but maybe in some jurisdictions that will be recommended. But there's a real, you know, question concern about um, how restaurants will interact with consumers who will resist that and think that that's an invasion of privacy. As well, logging because, you know, for contact tracing, that makes all the sense in the world. But for a restaurant uh, coming in from, you know, from a public service point of view, um, that may some consumers feel overly invasive. Um, and so it's, um, it's a, you know, Know, it's going to be, I think, uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction and restaurant by restaurant choice. I know some restaurateurs would say, I'm not going to open if, if I'm going to be the uh, the uh, scribe, uh, you know, trying to capture everybody who's coming in in case there is a breakout. Yet we all know from a public health point of view, contact tracing is certainly part of, uh, of recovery. Yeah. And, and we're asking people to do things and take on roles that they never trained for, signed up for, have expertise for without any, you know, liability coverage for those actions either, which is another problem. Let me ask you, um, 
a question, which is, are you, I asked Rick this question too, do you hear from your colleagues on the board of the Restaurant Association or your other friends in the industry about their uh, ability to get employees back? I mean, we hear that the unemployment insurance numbers have been high, um, that that has kept people uh, at home. The chambers had a hard time kind of making that make sense, given that it was so short term and that if your employer offers you a job back, those benefits are supposed to end according to the law. But we still seem to be getting either the sense that that could happen or, or stories on the ground that it is happening. So are you hearing stories that restaurants are having a hard time getting their employees back? Yes, without a doubt. And uh, and so that is a real issue. Um, and so there is term that if uh, you know, the newly proposed legislation in the House um, would continue that, um, that that would make it very difficult to bring people back. At the same time, as, as I'm sure you know, Suzanne, and the audience as well might know, the, the structure of the PPP program that's contained in existing legislation does not serve the restaurant industry well for a whole host of reasons. And so there is this sort of in-between phase of PPP doesn't quite help the small restaurant uh, operators. And oh, by the way, getting folks back, um, given some of the employee unemployment benefits um, is challenging as well. I have another question I want to ask you before we close, Michael, but let me turn to the Admiral for a second and ask her for a cause for optimism, right? You're you're at a different point in this than those of us on the East Coast. You're seeing a different part of this pandemic. Are you seeing anything that our viewers could point to for a reason to be optimistic about the future here? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in the state of Washington, it's actually divided into two very separate geographic areas. And so most of the area that was hardest hit in the beginning of this was in Western Washington. Um, and while there was a, a tremendous load on the on the healthcare system and, uh, you know, there was a lot of, of, of uncertainty and there was a great deal of, of uh, impact to the local economy and to the different business. One of the things that we've observed is in eastern Washington, uh, where they have a slightly different geographic distribution of people and they have slightly different industry. Uh, they had a slight lag in when the, the coronavirus started getting to them. What we've observed, though, is that because of what we learned in western Washington, what we're seeing in eastern Washington is that the community, public health, uh, the medical community, the hospital systems, and the business there are much quicker to react now. And so what we're seeing is a, a faster way of, of responding to uh, a new environment. And I think that becomes the, the process and the model that we want to use going forward as we continue to look towards recovery. If, how do we improve how quickly we can respond? And we're seeing evidence of that here in the state of Washington, getting much faster uh, responding to this, painting, and then being able to identify the risk. But it is going to take an all of society, all of America approach. Do you, let me ask Rick, this is an audience question. It, it might be a little bit specific. So, so uh, I'm sorry that I'm putting you on the spot, sir, but we're getting a question of about the topic of antiviral sprays. Is there any kind of evidence that using antiviral sprays in the theater would um, either make the theater goers confident or actually be helpful in, in fighting the spread of germs? Well, you know, we've, you know, I've just consulted with various service companies in the area that specialize in disinfecting uh, buildings and everything. And, and we are doing a disinfective program. Uh, I don't, 
for one of another word for it, it's, it's a fog type of program that will, uh, you know, disinfect the virus and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you can do that, but you can't do that every day. So it really comes down to uh, having the, the staff uh, maintain the, the disinfecting program we have with the seats and the, the areas that people touch. And uh, fortunately, you know, we can open the doors for the theaters for people so they don't have to touch touch those. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't really have anyone, you know, you know, this is America. People like to make money. So if there was a really strong antiviral viral spray that we could get, uh, I'm pretty sure I would be pitched to it by a lot of different companies. So I haven't seen anything. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, let me come back uh, to you, Michael, and ask you two questions. The one is, and we get this question a lot at the chamber, what could we do to support our local restaurants? What could we do to support people we've come over the years, whether they're the owners or the uh, service staff, what can we do? Gosh, I've been asked that question so many times as well, Suzanne. And I mean, there are a number of things, and it's and it's. I just want to also mention it's not just restaurants too, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, if the restaurant is offering gift cards, if there is a uh, some have GoFundMe relief uh, fund, some you know you might talk to the chef, proprietor, owner, say, what can I do? And uh, you know, I want to help. I want to make sure you survive. What what would be meaningful to you? Um, so there are a number of ways that, uh, you know, that have a local basis. The National Restaurant Association Educational Fund is a, a, a nationwide relief fund that's raised over $20 million uh, for relief of uh, restaurant, uh, you know, to pay out, I think it's a $500 payment to uh, restaurant workers. So there are a variety of things that be done on a local basis. In fact, just as we're speaking, I just got an email and I've gotten a bunch of these, you may have as well, from uh, Chef Daniel Balud's um, company, uh, in which he's providing his list of suppliers and saying, you know, order directly from them. I want them to serve. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's what a remarkable thing. Most restaurateurs would not freely say, hey, here are my suppliers, uh, folks, so go you know, buy from them in order to uh, uh, cook instead of coming to eat with me. But that's what's happening, I think, just because there's this overall sense for the supply chain, for our employees, for our distributors, et cetera, um, that uh, we're in a crisis mode and we want every, we want to lift all boats in order to ensure that as the recovery could, continues, uh, that uh, we're all there to serve one another. I kind of want to end on that note. You know, I think there have been some remarkable stories coming out of the food and beverage sector of generosity. Of, of feeding people in crisis, of, you know, if, if the table is a place that we all experience community, then watching what restaurants are doing for their communities has been really remarkable in this time. And maybe we could end on a note of optimism by asking you if there are examples of businesses that are doing good in this time that are going to stick with you long after the pandemic. Are you asking me? Uh, yes. Yeah, so... So there are, I mean, there's so many that one could describe. I mean, you know, probably the most uh, visible and extraordinary example and somebody from Washington is Jose Andres in his World Central Kitchen. There's nothing like that. You look at a, a restaurant in New York City, 11 Madison Park, rated one of the top in the world that is entirely serving community meals for those in need. Um, there are, you know, just an extraordinary number of, of examples of restaurants cooking for frontline employees, first responders, um, and, and as well well for those in need in a community who need food. Uh, we have these gaps in the supply chain to that we're serving restaurants
restaurants that in fact could now serve community through food banks. And those, are, I think, are finally being connected. It's taken a while, but it's something that needs to happen in order to keep, again, people fed and uh, suppliers and others, uh, you know, uh, in business. You know, I think that is the perfect note to end on. You know, we heard the Admiral say that we are learning and speeding up response times. We heard Rick Roman say that we are innovating and that businesses are figuring out ways to keep their employees and customers safe. And we heard you talk about how we can help our favorite restaurants and how restaurants are helping their communities. And I think that's what we believe about America, that we listen and learn, that we serve and we innovate. And uh, this program has just touched on some of those remarkable things. And so you can count on the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation to support these industries and public health as we all navigate this path forward back to work. We appreciate your time. Each of the three speakers today were just wonderful and really helped add to the body of knowledge that we're creating to help everybody in this difficult time. Uh, if you want to catch up on previous programs, you can find them at uschamberfoundation.org. If you have ideas for future programs, please email us at foundation at uschamber.com. We'll see you next week, and until then, please take good care of yourself.